0: everybody uh, a copy on a discussion on the uh, differences in the uh, genealogy in Luke's account and Matthew's account. And we'd mentioned that before we studied that particular thing, I'd get everybody a copy so they could read it, but uh, read the information, I think it'd make it so we can handle it in a lot quicker way. But I'll get that to you. Uh, last week, we looked, uh, spent all our time on the sixth chapter dealing with uh, Uh, The Sermon on the Plains dealing with a lot of the same material referred to uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And by the way, I might mention on this that uh, don't let it bother you if you read something like a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and a Sermon on the Plains in Luke, and yet it seems to be the same discourse or a similar type one. Uh, First of all, it may be Two different discourses. You know, scholars debate on that. But one of the things that uh, we do in evaluating literature from antiquity sometimes is that we ta- try to take our criteria of writing and expression and then impose it on those people. And we really can't do it. You have to go back in at their time and look at the techniques that writers used and then evaluate the material from that standpoint and when Matthew for example follows a technique of taking the various miracle stories and lumping them together and parables, lumping them together and teaching and lumping it together and kingdom stories and lumping it together, he follows a technique that was was used uh, in a very extensive way among the Jewish people. I mean this was a common way of writing and expressing themselves in other words, he simply is not trying to put things down in an absolute perfect chronological setting. And that's, that's, not, that's not the technique that he's using. When Luke uh, uh, gathers his material in the way he does, and he follows, follows more of a chronological pattern than, than Matthew or Mark, he also has following a literary technique that was in use in that day. Uh, when Paul writes his letters, uh, you can go back and read and sample letters written at the time of Paul uh, on secular matters and other religious matters, and you'll see that same form. In other words, he is following a definite literary technique, uh, just as when we write a letter and we'll say, "Dear so and so," and then we have our letter and then we end it in "Yours truly" or "Sincerely," etc. And we have a certain method of writing a business letter and a friendly letter, etc. Well, they had their various techniques too, and the writers of the Bible, when they wrote, they simply followed the various techniques that were used in their day. All right, in the Sermon on the Mount here, I keep, I'm afraid, again, it should be the Sermon on the Plains in Luke, we noted that the, the emphasis in Jesus' teaching was on what? Where was he, what's he talking about? As we, as we go through here and we read, uh, what we refer to as the teaching of Jesus uh, what's he normally talking about?
1: <coughs>
0: okay he, he deals a whole lot with the intent of the heart uh, out of the abundance of man's heart, his mouth speaketh, he gets into uh, even your actions and all and, and judges them as much by the intent of heart as, as anything else what else in the, in the teaching it emphasizes intent of heart in all that you do? If you were going to, you know, we have those matters that we refer to as doctrinal and those matters that are moral issues. Uh, really, that's just an arbitrary division that, you know, we have made. So-called doctrinal would be things like the Lord's Supper, whether or not you use an instrument and things like that. Uh, baptism, and then you have moral. Alright, if you were to think of Jesus' teaching in terms of doctrinal or moral principles, uh, in the way that we divide it up, where does he spend the most time?
2: Moral.
0: moral. Definitely on moral principles. Uh, 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 he, he, uh, uh, he talks about marriage and divorce. He talks about Your relationship with your neighbor, Uh, he talks about uh, different spiritual qualities and and things that are wrong from a a sin standpoint, but definitely his teaching centers around that particular area. In fact, uh, are there any real long discourses by Jesus on what we would call doctrinal matters? I can't, uh, it's, It's. he just seemed to do things, um, but uh, there was no big discourses on them whatsoever. You know, his his emphasis was on morality and your relationship with others and how you live your life and your relationship with God. We should have taken that off the hook. I thought
2: that Mark made a real good point last week in that a big part of his teaching was Coated. constantly... Can we let it go?
0: No, I'm trying to take it off the hook. It,
2: it may be for one of them or something. Okay. I was you about um, I thought Mark made a real good point that a large section of his teaching was in getting out onto the religious leaders and the hypocrisy that was involved.
0: Okay, a large part of the teaching, and, and actually his practicing, uh, involved confrontation with religious leaders of his day, and if anything, we noted he seems to go out of his way, doesn't he, to have confrontation. I mean, he purposely heals on the Sabbath day, time and again, knowing the response that's going to take take place. And so he, uh, and then of course when he went into the temple, and we had the confrontation there, and and we note this is interesting because. Uh, we are actually entering a phase uh, now where there's uh, there is a trend actually away from all confrontation. In other words, that of, of, of total toleration of, of differences, that uh, that uh, no no uh, getting things out. And uh, for example, there's there's no public debates or anything like that uh, anymore. And uh, when we go to service. Uh, it's sort of like, and, and there's, uh, I'll use Angie as an example and that. We mentioned uh, studying the, the position of women in the church and their function and all. And she said, you know, she, she just didn't, she wasn't interested in that. And, and the reason is a bad experience they just had. They just had a study like that at, uh, um, in Cookville. And she said some of them went to other places and there was hard feelings and things like that. And so the, when you have those things, they're, they're unpleasant, and the result is that uh, most people do want to avoid them. They, they really do. That uh, there, there are people in various denominations, uh, maybe with doctrines like eternal security, or once saved, always saved, or premillennialism, who honestly have doubts and reservations about those things, but rather than have the confrontation and the argument and everything, they glide over it. And they, and, they and, and from within our fellowship, now, I'm convinced the same thing happens in all groups, that, uh, that people simply don't come out because they don't want the unpleasantry <clears throat> that goes with it. And again, I'm not saying that we ought to court confrontation, <coughs> but I am saying, using the example of Jesus, that we need to stand up for what's right, even if confrontation is involved that if uh, that you, you, you don't compromise if you study something and you see it that way or you should have the right uh, to, to speak out You most of us before you settle on what you actually believe you go through a period where you're just trying to figure it out and you're actually wanting to hear different sides. and I think it's uh, sad that during this time when people go through that period <clears throat> that they really can't get it out in the open because somebody is liable to brand them or put them down or something of that nature and so there's a tendency not to bring those things out and just let them slide and we noted that uh, this really is not christ-like uh... christ actually confronted uh... things that he differed with and there was discussion and and debate on those particular issues any comment on that
3: it's a lot easier for you to have done the confronting since uh, he knew the truth in all cases. Whereas, you know, I, I guess with with the issues that we debate today, you have uh, you know dedicated scholars on both sides. Not uh, you know, not that I would be one of the scholars, but but you know, you have you know educated men on both sides. Right. Of well, the argument that are firmly believe what they're asserting, and that you know.
0: This would have been true with Jesus, though, too. You know, you'd have had scholars on both sides. But, most but
4: he of he, he was saying but it. the issues that he came what out on
2: oh. is that he could see the heart and
0: know well the heart. but i'm saying on the confrontation uh, he was tempted in all ways like we are and it said he studied you know he had see i really don't believe personally this would get into another thing i don't believe the information all the information in jesus mind was just thrust in there by the holy spirit i believe he studied all his life up until 30 years of age <coughs> And he had the information his parents give him. He had listened to teaching. I think he meditated on and studied the Old Testament. Uh, And then he had, you know, newer information, you know, that was given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But he really had to study, you know, to get the information. And where he corrected these people on uh, was really not about the New Covenant. It was about the Old Testament interpretation. All right. Now, if Jesus was just, just had this perfect understanding of the Old Testament thrust into his mind, and he didn't get it through just studying the way I have to, then I don't know how he is a comparison for me, you know, as a, as a person who is tempted in all ways like I am, and, and as a weak, frail person. It's when I can read that he was born as a baby, and he grew in wisdom and in stature, and I can see him study and inquire, then, you know, I can, I, I can see something that I, I can relate to there. And again, that's just my feeling when I think of Paul said that he emptied himself, and though he existed equal with God, he counted not that equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And even when he talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, he said he didn't know the exact time, you know, and the thing. So I, I think that the information that they stood corrected on was there, you know, in the, in the Old Testament.
5: Another, and, uh, go ahead. Another point, too, is if, if they couldn't see that, he wouldn't have been justified in condemning them for it. Right. So. If,
0: he, if, if honesty would not have allowed them to see that, that's, that's a real good point. It would have been ju- unjust on his part in condemning them. But, uh, but he, uh, the very fact that they could see it if they were not so dishonest with it, I think, brought on the condemnation. But And then I think of John the Baptist who confronted Herod and said, you know, you don't have the right to have her as a wife. You know, she belongs to your brother. And then I think of Paul going into the synagogue and all the debates that ensued and how they would beat him up and everything like that. And again, keep in mind now, I'm not saying that, uh, and there's scriptures against being a quarreler, like when Paul writes Timothy and all. And I'm not saying that we go around looking for arguments or we just pick people apart or anything like that, but that uh when you study something and and you have really worked hard and you've studied it and and it's it your interpretation is different than that out there <coughs> that you ought to have the freedom to at least speak out and and be heard on that and if there's some discussion back and forth, that is really good for truth, and that uh and then if it becomes obvious that somebody is trying to get you to bend to what everybody can see is no more than a tradition, you know, is really not a truth of God, then I'm saying that Christ-likeness would mean that you, uh, you don't allow that to happen. You, you go ahead and take your stand for, uh, for what is there rather than allowing somebody to just browbeat you down to the point that, you know, that you allow a tradition to, to masquerade as a, as a fact of, of God.
4: I think there's some attitudes and some moral issues that are just uh, plain and obvious. If I, you know, I mean, if, if you do not study at all, and that seems like to me what you, you know, uh, you'll see Jesus come out real dogmatically against mm-hmm. the Pharisees and their attitudes and their uh, uh, things morally that are just obviously wrong, that you know, just if you just know the law right. of love, that you're supposed to love your neighbor, you know these things are wrong. And that's that's uh, I don't see anything like uh, coming out real dogmatic on any. Uh... Well, some. What about the uh, what about the Sabbath? I mean, he went out of his way to aggravate people by the Sabbath day. I think.
3: And yeah, it was an interpretation. And, sure and, and, uh, and what
4: about when he when he when he does <coughs> to he because it's their he, attitude. He, he, the paralytic their attitude though, that he was coming against. Well, the them? paralytic, uh, and and he says your sins are forgiven. And he knew full well that was going to irritate a lot of people, but He did it, it on purpose. He was he was attacking their attitude,
5: their their. Uh, well, I think. Well, I think also not only that, that's that's that he was he was he was performing the miracles, and they were refusing to acknowledge him as a prophet or being yep. from God, and he was calling that into question too. I mean, he was saying, "I've got this authority, and you're not willing to admit it." Yeah. Well, they they so. didn't
4: perceive him as being son of God, and that was the that was the. That was why things like your sins are forgetting was absolute sounded must have sounded ludicrous to these people who were listening.
0: And, the, uh, right. I the thing. the thing that Mark made I think is that on the one hand, Peter and others looked at that and heard the same thing. But at the same time, they was hearing that that sounded just like you're saying. Ludicrous. They also looked at those miracles. That's
4: right. And, and their
0: conclusion was like Nicodemus. Nobody could do these things except God be with him.
4: I mean, Jesus, I think, presented these people with a lot of hard choices, but yet uh, the, the, the point was that the miracles, the evidence, was so overwhelming that, I mean, he said at one point, even if, if, even if this all gives you a lot of tr- trouble, believe the miracles, you know.
0: Hmm. Um, all right, now look at what we're doing now in our world today. And in, in you, in you think of the United States with all the influence of, of the secular humanists and atheists and whatnot. When we claim Jesus is literally the Son of God, and that this book is literally written by men who were inspired by God—that—that that, that sounds just as ludicrous and ridiculous to them. Well, it would to me too. But then, but then, what happens though? Once the evidence is presented, and somebody is not willing to be honest with the evidence, uh, or they won't even take the time to to hear it out, then there would be that place, you know, for a strong statement. And I think that's what happened with with Jesus that. Uh, in John, in fact hold your place there and flip over to John 15, I think this hits it exactly so far as God really not expect, there's no rebuke or condemnation unless a person had the opportunity to see something and 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 there had to be sufficient information for them to see it, or there would have been no rebuke and that would be with doctrines and all okay look at uh, verse 22 there uh let's see mark would you read that john 15 and verse uh, 22 and then uh, read on that, read it through verse uh, 24.
5: Okay. if i had not come and spoken to them they would not be guilty of sin now however they have no excuse for their sin he who hates me hates my father as well if I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my Father.
0: Okay, so he, he says that very plain, that if I had not performed these miracles among them, there would have been no sin in the rejection of me. And he said, if I had not said these things to them, then there would be an excuse you know, for, their, for their sin. But it wasn't just that he had said these things, they'd been backed up by miracles. And, and again, so we can put ourselves in their place, and just like now, when we look at the seventh chapter, just a few of the miracles there, they had seen him raise the dead, give sight to the blind, cleanse lepers, calm a storm, etc. And so that things that, that could not come from a human being, and, and so that that evidence just literally shouted, uh, no matter what, their understanding or anything like that, and and there was Peter and the other apostles, and they looked at that, and then he says to Peter, he said, Peter, who do men say that I am? And of course Peter said, some say you're such and such, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And he said, I say that you're the Christ, the Son of God. And he said, Peter, uh, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Well, flesh and blood was saying that Jesus was a wine-bibbler and a gluttonous person and, and everything like that. But the miracles said to Peter that it had, he had to come from God, just like it did to Nicodemus. So you have uh, Peter having just as much problem with the sonship of Jesus as anybody else, but he just, he, he couldn't get away from those miracles. And, and then these others, on the one hand, he forgave sins, but on the other hand, he did it from within a context. He, said, he went on and said, well, what is easier to do? Your sins say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? But so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sin, to take up your bed and walk, and so that once that happened, then there was no excuse for that kind of attitude because they they they've seen the evidence, and I think we where we can uh, see something too, just like on that statement we just read, in our society today, it's not fair. Sometimes I think we're not fair to atheists and infidels, that we talk about them like uh, Norman Lear and characters like that is or Ted Turner is is these terrible people. And many of these people are totally unaware of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, or the inspiration of the Bible, that they've heard a (coughs) lot of false things. And in reality, if you or I had in our mind what they do, we may not be believers either, and, and probably would not. And that we don't have the right to expect people to believe until they have heard the evidence. but then once, hearing it, they've got a responsibility to be honest with it. And I think again on that confrontation that I don't know how in a a society that's becoming more atheistic, how we can present the gospel without being willing to to confront and and have an argument or have somebody uh, get mad at you and, and think you're an idiot or not a good person or anything. I just don't see how that can happen in our environment, uh, the the way that it is now, and so if Christians go around operating in their mind that it's it's unchristian to argue and to have confrontation, and we just need to always be at peace at all costs, and they have this attitude in the church building and they and they have it out in the world, it's it's not conducive to learning truth, and it's not conducive to propagating truth. I think we we draw
5: the line too far. Uh, are we? We try to draw the line on on what's, what's opinion and then what is, is, um, his commandments. And, um, I think through, through some of our experiences, even discussing opinion and how difficult that is sometimes, we, uh, at least in my own uh, situation, we, we withdraw from having a real hard discussion on, on some of the commandments. I think that, at least in the Church of Christ, um, it, it's just a, a very unpleasant thing, and the peer pressure is so strong that you don't get into real tough discussions for one, in, in the one hour allocated on Sunday morning or whatever. And uh, just the just the time limits, time limit itself, it doesn't it just doesn't. It's not conducive to a, to a study. Yeah. I and mean, we spend what two or three hours here, maybe, but on but in the structure of the of the modern church, it's just not there. And just by the time you get started, somebody's saying, "Well, it's, I got a roast another of hold oh, you down." Know, and it's all you've got to stop.
2: time to do is just to make someone man. think, man, no. or make them think that you're a false maybe, maybe prophet, get, and they want to no. listen to you next Sunday.
5: Right. Right. Maybe, maybe you get just started, and you you haven't got any time for your supporting evidence. Right. Right. There's no reasoning. Right. And you and you've just created another another skeptic about you, you know. Right. And uh, so it's.
0: You, I agree you draw, with what your you're saying there. Do. On, on, do
5: I speak up or do I just remain silent? Right. I agree
0: with what you're saying there. In fact, in all honesty, there's been times in the past that I've spoke up that if I had to do it over again, I would not do it for the very reason you're talking about, that even though you would like to get into it, we do not have a setup in our, in our traditional way of studying. It's not conducive to discussing anything, really, that's, that has any depth to it. That's the reason we, we, we send our young people all the way uh, up to college and into college, and many times they've, they've never even studied the manuscripts of the Bible, and they know very little about the manuscripts or the various, various things on how it's put together, evidences, because in that <coughs> format that we have with a 30-minute sermon, and our one-hour class, for the time you count off the sing, singing and, and socializing, getting to and from class, your typical class, you're, you're doing good if you get 40 minutes in a class. And it's really not conducive to doing, and then it's another week before you meet again. Contrast that to a college class, like if you're taking English or history or whatever, that uh, you have three hours of instruction per week minimum uh, for that period of time and then you've got homework and all where you're reading hundreds of pages and coming together or in high school where you study a subject every period and we just uh, hit on different subjects in the Bible class, different in the sermon, different in the Sunday night sermon and different on Wednesday and in about 30 to 40 minute sections and then we come back the the next week. You're right. I'm not
5: familiar with with, um, the structure that Martin Luther worked under. But when he tacked those points of difference, finally, right, I don't, I don't know how much time had it, elapsed it <coughs> or the process that led him up to that point, right? How much discussion went on or whatever. But um, I know it's difficult in, in in modern America to to do that.
0: He, uh, what Martin Luther did, we all look at as being tremendously courageous. I said most of us do. I think maybe all of us here tonight, and. Uh, the Protestant Reformation depended on that act by Martin Luther, and yet many people within our fellowship today, and within other fellowships that look back and respect Martin Luther for what he did and and the importance he was to the Protestant Reformation, would look down on somebody who would do the same thing in our churches today, to stand up and say, "Hey, here are some things." where I think we need to read in areas where we for example within our fellowship we might say that that uh, we, need to, we need to reconsider our materialistic worldly attitude on some, some things in light of these spiritual teachings or, or, or our attitude on fellowship or whatever it might be. Uh, let's uh, get into the seventh chapter here and no, I'll, I'll notice several things. Obviously, uh, all of us with our different backgrounds will notice different things. With, with my background, I'll always tend to notice those things that are in the realm of, of evidence and truthfulness, and others of you will notice other type things. But we've been going through uh, Luke and looking at those marks of truthfulness and historicity about it. And we noted that Luke is not writing in a fairy tale type way, he's, he's given information in such a way that you can nail it down and like, for example back up here again to the third chapter uh, in verse uh, this is just one sample first verse in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, governor uh, Herod, Philip and he names all of these Annas and Caiaphas the high priest, and then the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert, etc. Uh, He is so specific that if you're living at that time and you receive this material, you can challenge this. And he writes in such a way that for you and I today, we can go back and and read (coughs) about Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod, etc., and we can challenge uh, these events. Well now, Look over here in the 7th chapter as we look at some of these miracles. And notice again, and remember that Luke is writing a work that meets the acid test of history. It's written as refutable testimony. In other words, Luke is written and published and circulated at a time when people are alive who were involved in the events. And that's the acid test of history. Look at, uh, let's see here in the 7th chapter with the, uh, the first miracle here. Uh, Notice he gives the location in verse 1, Capernaum. And then notice the next one in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went down to a town called Nain. And then it mentions that there was a large crowd uh, gathered. it. And then uh, verse 17, this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So he writes as a historian and writes in a way that can be challenged and when you read these things ask yourself the question could these events actually have happened and not have made a a great commotion in that local area and if they did not happen could you write something as evidence and circulate it at that time and not have it challenged okay let's start there uh, uh... hugh i want to read that starting with the 7th chapter and read that, uh, that first section, first 10 verses there.
5: When Jesus finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Then a centur- centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of, uh, sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority.
0: Luke is a book in the Gospels. If you think about it, of unlikely spiritual heroes. Remember, we talked about the fact that uh, he has two guys go up to pray—a Pharisee and a publican—and the spiritual hero is the publican. He has a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan pass up a man that's been passed by a man that's been beaten and robbed, and the spiritual hero is a Samaritan the one they all looked down on and and was legally wrong on on so many points. Uh, He has ten lepers cured, and the one that turns back to give thanks is a foreigner, and that's a Samaritan. And now we have a situation where he's, he's trying to pull faith out of these people, that it's one thing to see a miracle and intellectually believe that that came from God, like Nicodemus it's all that. And he said, I don't understand a lot of things, but I know it has to come from God. But it's another thing to then take that next step where you actually put your trust in him. And so it's one thing to intellectually see the evidence and evaluate it and say it's so. And then it's another thing, that's intellectual belief. Remember that James, James said the devils believe and tremble. They have intellectual belief. But then it's another step to actually put your trust, and that was difficult to do. And so here, we have the centurion here. Obviously, when, when he uh, sends to have Jesus cure his servant, he obviously has, is aware of all these miracles that Jesus has been doing. Otherwise, why send him to cure? But then notice the where the faith actually comes in. A lot of people were coming to Jesus to be healed and all. But he didn't even think that Jesus needed to see the servant and notice the reasoning process that has gone on in his mind. He is a person with authority himself. And he knows what you do when you're in authority. And so he says, hey, if, if, no more, if I just command people and they do what I say, uh, if he's who I believe he is, then he has the authority to do this, that he can do it any way he wants to, and it'll just happen. And so the very fact <coughs> that, he, that he was able to project from his own setting uh, as one who has authority... And realize it must be the same way. In fact, it seems to me that the reasoning he goes through is very similar to the reasoning that David goes through when he writes the 23rd Psalm. As a shepherd boy, David knew what he did for his sheep. And he just took one step forward and felt that God had to do at least that for him that he did for his own his own sheep. And this guy is one in authority. And so he says, well, this must be the case. And so he steps out and he absolutely has this much trust and then notice the compliment that he gets from Jesus. He said he hasn't uh, uh, has not seen uh, this kind of faith in, in all Israel, even in Israel. And then they returned to the house and, and found the, the servant. Well, isn't it interesting all the way through here how that uh, the people that should have responded didn't, and the least expected did? I mean, here's a Roman centurion, and there's uh, publicans, and there are the Samaritans, and there is the mob, and there is this, these rugged fishermen from Galilee who are responding, and yet the religious leaders are seeing exactly the same thing and not responding. Why?
5: Like Tim said, more oh, ago it's, uh, it's attitudes.
2: Preconceived, um, prejudice.
5: You know, Jesus saw the attitude of the Pharisees, and it was difficult to to uh, to touch them. I mean, they, they were they were it's like, well, what else did they need? They they had everything they needed with their religious system, and um, that's not too different than than what we see today in some in some circles.
0: Okay. Like
3: pride is a lot of it.
0: Okay, pride. Uh, mm-hmm.
3: Seeking you shall
1: find and you know, a willingness to really want to know what the real truth is and a willingness to be objective and honest with the information. Why
0: does pride, pride put you to such a disadvantage when it comes to trying to figure out what truth is on any matter?
3: you got something to lose. Okay. You, you, you perceive that you do anyway. You're intimidated by it.
0: Okay, to, if you want truth, then you have to be willing to accept the possibility that you might be wrong, right? That, uh, and uh, the more pride we have, the more difficult it becomes to admit we're wrong uh, on a point. And so that, uh, <coughs> that uh, pride can be a real thorn so far as truth is concerned because of the, of the, the more pride, the more difficulty, in acknowledge wrong in any particular area. And then what about the um, biases, too, that uh, it's interesting that some of these people who have no background also have no no biases, you know, that uh, they just simply look and evaluate the evidence. We, in in, uh, mission-type areas, like when we was in the Northeast and we worked with the congregation there and all, (coughs) I would, 10 times over, rather sit down and study with somebody that that really doesn't know anything about the Bible or hasn't studied that much in it as somebody who is you know already has strong feelings and is absolutely confident they're, they're right on that and I think that's something that we all you don't know, have, to, have to fight and all but uh, the uh, <coughs> we thought the best people that we studied with were people with a Roman Catholic background they, they had the teaching of the church and all, but they really hadn't studied uh, in the Bible, and they acknowledged that. And it was just like they were like a like a baby learning how to walk. You know, we'd sit down because we were just always showing them something that they was not aware of. You know, they just simply hadn't hadn't studied it. And so they really didn't have any strong feelings about what the Bible said because they had no real background in it. And the same with, you know, atheists and infidels. No, no strong feelings one way or the other. Uh, I would much rather study with a, a scientist who's an atheist than a liberal theologian who's, a, who's an atheist who has uh, i mean had supposedly has, has his doctor's degree in this particular area and then has made these real strong statements uh, read the mark you want to read that next one the eleventh through seventeenth uh, verse
4: quick question there's a little bit of a discrepancy between this account and Matthew's account where here he, uh, he uh, <coughs> says the centurion uh, sent some elders to talk to Jesus. He didn't directly talk to Jesus. It didn't seem to Matthew's account says the centurion went and talk to Jesus. Has, has there been any speculation on what's it or an explanation um, of oh, about that?
0: Yeah, you have... Um, Number one, to uh, to say that somebody talked with, or to say they sent emissaries to talk with them, is not necessarily a, a contradiction. That uh, that, uh, for example, David is referred to as having killed Uriah, <coughs> when in reality he had him killed. God takes credit for doing things that he simply brings about like, shall evil befall a city, and God not have caused it, in John, in, in Amos 6 and verse 3, that he will actually take credit for something that he has caused, or something like that. And so for an individual or a writer to give credit to somebody to have done something that maybe they initiated and had done, I don't know that there would uh, you know, be a necessary contradiction of the point. Uh, in fact, looking at it from the other side, Steve, that obviously you have a in each case a centurion, right? Mm-hmm. And we have a servant that's cured. And and yet with it uh, recorded in those two ways and an apparent contradiction on some of the peripheral, what do you see there that that is actually good evidence for the event? Didn't copy
4: not copy.
0: Okay, it's obvious that Matthew didn't copy Luke or Luke didn't copy Matthew because, and there's so many times like that 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 the apparent contradiction shows the individuality of the account and that one did not just sit down and look directly at the other. The very fact that, uh, remember Luke tells you in the beginning that there were other materials circulating at this time, right? And that that, uh, other materials. And so he's going to put an orderly account. The very fact that a person will feel free to just sit down and put something down and circulate it shows he, at least he is, he's not worried about being, he, that he's confident, you know, of the truthfulness of it. And so that uh, in that uh, thing like with Matthew and this, and I think several times, uh, I don't know that, uh, that you could show anything other than uh, each of them were operating on different bits of information. They were each familiar with the centurion and the miracle itself. And I don't know that there would be anything that would be contradictory at all where one says he sent so-and-so another one says he brought it about himself. You know, that uh, depending on how much information that they had. The, the, the thing is that they keyed on the event itself. Any other comment, or you want to add anything to that, Steve? By the way, there's, that's good to point out because there's several, there's several things just exactly like what you said
4: came up in our class. That's the reason I was our Wednesday in our class. We were studying Matthew, and so it came out. What about Luke?
3: In this case, Matthew would have likely been the eyewitness, whereas Luke would have heard this from one of the apostles or somebody else.
0: Right. Our or talk that is somewhere. But, see, one characteristic of Matthew, Luke got his information from eyewitnesses, and one characteristic of Matthew was generalities.
3: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, Mark, for example, although it's shorter, is much more specific, and so is Luke. Uh, Matthew will just say two disciples, uh, Mark will give a name, or, or, a, or a specific one. Uh, Luke has two thieves being crucified, and he separates the two. And has and, and has one, and, and then the other that are in two. Uh, Matthew just has two thieves and mentions that they were railing, you know, at at Jesus. And so, but a much more general observation, and not near as specific as Luke. Well, one of the characteristics when you read from uh, uh, writers that compare the synoptics, an observation that they all have recognized on Mark is that he speaks in generalities; that he doesn't. He doesn't concern himself with, with bringing in his, the specific details of either Mark or Luke in the, in the process. So, uh, and it's just like uh, the uh, birth story uh, of Jesus in Matthew and Luke. You have much more specific uh, detail in Luke uh, than you do in Matthew. Well, Luke, uh, at least according to the early church fathers, got his information direct. Mary, remember, was staying with John. And that Luke, according to the, the early church fathers, you know, got his information directly from Mary. And so Matthew writes truths about that, but he doesn't become as specific on some of the little intimate details as Luke, and yet Luke is the one that's not an eyewitness himself. So you you could have just a... You know a difference in the rider to one person the train goes by and to another person a long train to another one he'll take many cars you know that that went by
5: this uh, this centurion
0: was a roman A centurion would have been over a hundred men, and um, the indication would be a you know, romans see roman Rome was the conquering country, and they were the army Israel really didn 't have a standing army the the only
5: uh, see he he was a he was from a from having a good heart. I mean, when you read back there, and he says, uh, I mean, even the even those that were sent the, dele- the the delegation sent to Jesus to ask him to come, says this man deserves to have you do this. Right. Because he loves our nation. That's something that was out of the ordinary there.
0: And built a synagogue.
5: And then is built our synagogue, which was oh. a second thing out of the ordinary. So he obviously was an
0: an extraordinary person. It lets you believe that, see, a number of the uh, Romans and (coughs) Greeks had actually been converted, you know, under the law of Moses, and and many of them had not been circumcised, but they had come to believe in the law of Moses and the Messiah, like Cornelius, for example, had already come to believe in the Jewish God and had a great reputation on the Jews and had accepted that law. And the indication here is that he has already, by him, building the synagogue and loving that nation. And by the way, most of the Romans did not love the nation of Israel, that uh, the Jews were actually somewhat of a hated people, and other people resented them because they thought they had so many uh, privileges from Rome that they did not get. For example, the Jews were the only people of all that Rome conquered that did not, was not numbered into their army. It was because they refused to fight on the Sabbath day. Out of those things, and so they didn't force them to. You know, it was later on when they tried to force Christians and all, but they really they just gave up on the Jews, and so uh, and then the fact that the Jews not only embraced Jehovah, but they did something nobody else did. They denounced all the other gods. See, the Romans would have their god, and they would let you have your god also, and then they might argue with you about who had the strongest god, but but everybody believed that everybody else had gods, the Jews come along and say all your gods are nothing. You know, ours is the only God. Well, then the Jews actually were called atheists on non-believers in God. And the Christians, by the way, were identified as atheists in that time. So for this guy to love the Jewish nation and build a synagogue the, from a background where the Jews are actually hated and, and, and people are jealous of them and all, The only indication is that he, too, is looking for the Messiah and that he has been converted and become a believer in the true God. And remember when Moses gave the law to the people, he told them that if you obey these precepts, that other nations will see what righteous laws that you have and what a righteous God that you have. And then he went on to to explain the effect that they would have on, on other people. But uh, the indication in my mind here is that he had become a believer and was strong in that.
5: Uh, Back to Steve's point: Could could it be possible that um, one or the other um, became worded wrong through um, through copying after copying after copying by scribes, Uh, but not uh, by the early church? Well, the only thing is that that
0: right now you have documents that go right back into the first century for both. In other words, you've, uh, you can completely reconstruct the New Testament from letters written at the very in the first century. And so it's, uh, this particular story is exactly the same. Now, there, the point you make, there are some areas where we can nail down. That when we say that the New Testament documents are uh, 99.5% accurate, well, there are those there are those points in this one half of one percent of material that we can show has been corrupted in various ways, and, there, and there's several points in Matthew, by the way, that have. But this is not one of them. In everything that we have, and commentators used to some of them would try to explain this by saying that uh, maybe they're talking about two different events. But when you read it, there's too many similarities there. It, it, that's. To me would be dishonest not to acknowledge it. But the big thing is that there was a miracle, it's the same type miracle, and there's a centurion, the same, the same events involved in it. It shows each person obviously was not copying from the other. And then the contradiction, like I say, doesn't have to be, because it is not unusual in writing to give somebody credit for saying or doing something, when in reality they did it through an emissary. I mean, and that God. Uh, uh, for example, it says you'll read it when the law was given that it was one time you'll say it was given by an angel, another time you say God gave it, but it was God doing it through the angel. And in reality, everything that God did, He did through angels. All the speaking, and yet it'll say God, you know, said such and such. And remember when Jacob wrestled with an angel and said, "I've seen God."
2: To my mind, it just it seems that you just got two different writers recording it, and one did a little bit more in detail. Certainly, he apparently <coughs> sent elders ahead of him, but then he could have still said, um, uh, the centurion could have said to him when he come near his house, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Yeah. He could have sent the elders and still said this when, when Jesus came one writer takes it upon himself to tell about the elders being sent ahead right. or the other writer just simply tells this. Like we might say that if we're telling an yeah. event that happened here or in Minville last week. One of us may go a little bit more into detail and the mm-hmm. other not. Yeah. And obviously all, all the conversation's not recorded in both places because in Matthew he goes to the trouble to say, Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. And over here, he doesn't bother to say that.
0: Jesus yeah. said,
2: I'll go and heal him.
0: Yeah. You can, uh, write, and there's so it's no... it's two <coughs> different writers just recording. Keep in mind, what they, what you song. mean by apparent contradiction is something that on the surface, there seems to be the possibility of a contradiction, but then on close examination show, there really doesn't have to be anything there. You know, you just have different parts of the information <coughs> and all that's, that's being given. And in reality, I think, uh, like the study is talking about, there's heaven there, Steve, that I think a lot don't appreciate fully how important the apparent contradictions are in showing the individuality of the accounts themselves. That uh, you really, uh, it would be just like if you had two witnesses going before a jury uh, relating to some event, and if they said exactly the (coughs) same thing in the same words... They throw it out because the evidence would be they just got together and collaborated, and you don't have you just got one witness. You really don't have two, and uh, we we know that uh, the when you if you was to see a wreck or anything, each of us could relate it, and there may be some apparent contradictions. But the big thing is there was a wreck there, and the and all the essentials, uh, you know, are there in that way. Steve,
4: this is a more of a. Uh, a general philosophical question, but um, the the centurion, who was uh, may have been a convert, a Jewish convert, but apparently was not a Jew, because he says, "I have found such faith in, in Israel." Right. Wasn't a Jew, and and, and 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 Jesus is amazed at his faith. Then there's the Canaanite woman, and Jesus is I'm very impressed by her faith. She wasn't a Jew. Then you have like those examples that you talked about earlier, uh, just generally uh, examples of, of spirituality. You talk about the uh, the uh, the Good Samaritan and uh, the other what? publican, publican, and so forth. I mean, are these reflections of just the reality? Was it really this? Uh, I mean, these most of Jesus' ministry was concentrated in Israel. Israelites were supposed to be the people prepared. I would, I mean, I would expect that, that disproportionately there would be a lot more faithful Israelites than than uh, than faithful Gentiles. So, is that not the reality? Or is the Holy Spirit just trying to make a point here? I mean, uh, when, when every good example seemingly comes from a non-Israelite.
0: Well, number one, there were a lot of faithful Israelites. Keep in mind, most of the Jews did reject him. He came into his own, and his own rejected him. Uh, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, Who hath believed our report? And to whom shall the arm of the Lord revealed? You know, that again, who has believed our message? That The majority did reject him. Okay, that's, that's the fact. But all the apostles were devout Jews. Now, the 70 that went out. Two by two were devout Jews. The women that ministered to Jesus and took up a collection and supported He and the others were devout Jews. Uh, the, the three thousand converted on Pentecost, you know, were devout Jews. So that so they, there, there were a lot of the, devout so Jews.
4: Gentiles, it seems like it, it, it's well it's without exception. I mean, it has to be on purpose.
0: Okay. Well, right. I think the the thing is,
2: Maybe the he one is one flying.
0: One. He is he is obviously flying in the face of the. The legalistic Jews who were so influential among Israel as a whole, and, and yet at the same time were rejecting. And if these people out here who have nowhere near the background can easily see these things about Jesus, then what is your excuse? You know, these people that have been prepared and all like that. I mean, here it is that a centurion can see it, a Samaritan can see it, a Canaanite woman uh, can see it, a publican can see it. And what is your excuse that you can't see it? You have all this knowledge, just like he said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're a ruler, and you can't see these things? And so that, to me, it's saying that, number one, there there is no excuse for these people, that if they're honest with the material, and and like in this eighth chapter of Luke, he'll get into the parable of the sower, where he said the seed is the word of God, and bear fruit in a good and honest heart. But then also, you have this, the... The most influential Jews are very legalistic, and they actually think of their justification uh, from the standpoint of their own merit and their own works. And uh, And these other people just simply made a good example that the heart is more important than legality. In other words, so many of these Jews were legally right and heart wrong. And so then these other people that had a good heart but were legally wrong it just gave Jesus a great opportunity to show that these people were closer to the kingdom of God than the individuals that were legally right but wrong in their heart, that 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 the heart was more important, that there were weightier matters of the law, and the heart issues were more important.
1: Paul, well, do you think that, uh, I hadn't thought of this before, but if Jesus would have never used uh, non-Jewish or Gentile in their examples, do you think it would have been a whole lot harder to convince people that Gentiles would be equal heirs um, after he was
0: gone? That's a real good point Mark. A lot of the you know, commentators all through the years have pointed that very thing out. That this was going to be an absolute shock to the Jew that the Gentile was going to come in as a fellow heir and that Jesus actually is also preparing the way. And he's making it clear. I mean here, they've got, here in their Gospels they've specifically got these examples of Samaritans and publicans and a centurion who have embraced him based on their faith and have been complimented for it. And what, for example, if you have Paul in the New Testament, all of a sudden trying to nail this down that you're saved by grace through faith and that the Gentiles and and Jews are one, what if you have Paul, think of the difficulty he had as it was, what if you had Paul doing that, but there was not a single solitary example of where Jesus had anything to do with the Gentiles or the Samaritans, that he, he stuck 100% with the Jews no matter what? Well, he, he would have had even more of a monumental task than he did.
3: Sure, Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, it makes sure you appreciate what when Paul re, rebuked Peter, when you realize all the examples that, that Jesus had done right before all the apostles' eyes, that Peter really should have understood by then. Yeah. Probably. And that, you know, it was really a pretty big weakness for him not to, to fellowship the Gentiles fully. Right. The, you know, the womb, And yeah. you can kind of understand Paul rebuking him for right. it. And, and another
0: thing along that line, too, uh, Mark, is that Luke is a Gentile. And he could have, uh, scholars believe, Luke has more of this than anybody else. That Luke specifically was a, in, in all, see what you have from both Matthew, Mark, and Luke's standpoint, you've got all these individual, there's no one account, but you've got all these individual stories floating around about Jesus. The, the miracle stories, the parables, the teachings uh, the times, the confrontation; these were all separate episodes, and they weren't they weren't just floating around orally; they were floating around in in print. So Luke has a wide volume of material to pick from. Well, then obviously, as a Gentile writer, that would be very interesting to him about Jesus and his attitude towards a centurion or a Samaritan and and people like that. For example, it's been noted that uh, Luke uh, concentrates. Uh, on a lot of healing miracles, which fits in with his background as being a physician. It's like he's just fascinated with all these healing miracles that take place. On the other hand, Matthew is uh, (coughs) writing to Jews, trying to convince them that Jesus is their Messiah, and he concentrates more on prophecy than any one of the others. Uh, To read Matthew is, this happened to fulfill what the prophet said, this happened to fulfill what the prophet said, this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. That he is obsessed with nailing down Jesus as the fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, in fact, some people think too zealous that he even grabbed uh, that he, that in, in that particular area. But then Luke, on the other hand, is a Gentile and a and a doctor, you know. And you get uh, and, and between all four of them, we're getting a, a complete look. Any other comments? You know, one thing you said back here, Christy, I think when we was talking on that confrontation, I got to thinking that I wouldn't want to, you know, mislead or anything like it. I believe one point you made is is on that right, like when to confront and like Jesus knew. One thing that Jesus did know (coughs) that you and I can't is intent of heart. And I do believe that when it comes to confrontation with others, that we ought to limit ourselves to the facts and the fruits and not get into intent of heart. You know, because we don't know, you know, many times uh, that uh, sometimes we get right into a person's intent of heart when in reality we don't know a lot of times where I think we ought to limit ourselves to just the actual facts that we see and observe and the actual fruits, whereas he could get into the actual intent of the heart itself.
5: Paul, don't you think that that, uh, uh, some of the the, uh, Gentiles and others that Jesus dealt with there was an appreciation for the spiritual matters that he, and, uh, the spiritual things that he satisfied in their lives, and I was thinking about a, a parallel of to that today. We take for granted in our, in our country um, the freedoms that we have, and I, I know it, I, it never, I, um, I never failed to be amazed when a, a, a another person from another country comes to our country and takes the. And becomes a citizen. It's a big deal to them. Yeah, and they appreciate it, and they, and they are um, almost uh, surprised that it's that it's not a big deal to us. You know, you you heard them say that, and so looking at that, then some of these things Jesus dealt with, it was a big deal to them, to the to the non-Jew, while the Jew seemed to you know uh, it wasn't anything. Uh, special is more of an aggravation to them, you know, than anything else. That that he was continually uh, uh, bringing uh, that, that they weren't, um, there was a heartfelt religion with them. It was more just a, they, they was going through the motions, and that they even called call them hypocrites, you know, because of that. But they, they weren't really, um, uh, appreciative of, of what God had done in, in life yeah.
0: I think you on the going through the motions with some of them, and keep in mind we're just talking about. Obviously, they were very sincere, devout Jews and no. all. But look at our at Christianity today. I mean, when you go to church, in all honesty, what percentage of people are really there because they love God and they want to worship God, and how many are going through the motions? I mean, when you, just, when you, when you look in and you see the, the emphasis and the, the pop and, and the, the, the attitude <coughs> and, uh, that uh, I don't know, you know, what percentage or anything like that. But uh, I know from the, uh, the contribution as a percentage of the, uh, of, of the income and all, I know from the, the emphasis, I can see whether or not a congregation is willing to support missionaries or has any desire. to. Support. How can you love God and, and believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and not have a desire to promote mission work? And yet the biggest percent of, of people that call themselves Christians are not zealous to promote mission work. I mean, they're more concerned about uh, uh, things for themselves in, in that area. So uh, obviously we have a lot of cultural Christians just like they did Jews, a lot of cultural Jews who really were not in love, in, in love with God.
5: I think what I, what I was trying to say is I agree with what Tim and Steve said earlier. It looked like Jesus really was going out of his way to, uh, to, to uh, teach the, uh, especially the Pharisees, yeah. but all the Jews combined, especially the Pharisees, and it incensed the Pharisees. And you can't hardly turn a page, um, not very many pages, that you don't see a confrontation between him and the Pharisees. Yeah. And um, so it, it may be um, a combination of one, that he, he was looking for ways, Point out these spiritual truths to the Pharisees, and at the same time, uh, the examples they they came up with were truly appreciative of it. I mean, they they were sincerely uh, they, they appreciated that uh, you know that he was was able to to do what he did.
0: If you were one of the multitude, and you had seen a lot of that in the Pharisees through the years, and out of fear you hadn't spoke up. <laughs> Can you imagine how you would have felt when Jesus tackled those people the way he did? I mean, when deep in your heart you really believe they were hypocrites too, and then to see him tackle them in, in that way, I'd say they probably <laughs> a lot of them probably uh, felt good, you know, in in that situation.
5: And you know, almost from the very first uh, chapter, you can see you can see it building, and you know it's going to come to a, a climax at some point in time. This this uh, confrontation from the time that they, they uh, <coughs> tried to kill him as an, as an infant and they, they fled to Egypt. You, right. you could see this building and building and building until finally they decided to kill him. Right. You know, they, they put out the death warrant on him and his time hadn't come yet, and, but it wasn't long after that that they got him. Yeah. And, and then to look back on it from our perspective and see, well, that was all part of God's plan from beginning to the end. You know? yeah. uh,
0: God allowed it to happen, but they still did it of their own yeah. free will. Uh, let's read this next one Uh, did we read verses 11 through 17 okay who, who was we up to Mark did you read that please
1: soon afterward Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him as he approached the town gate a dead person was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a large crowd from the town was with her When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country.
0: Okay, now, as you look at that, now from an evidence standpoint, notice he locates it at Nain, and then it said it's spread, and he mentions the crowd, and remember Luke is telling you that all these stories are circulating, and he's putting it down. It's interesting because as this material is published, and to the best that we can figure out, Luke is published somewhere in the uh, early 60s, maybe before but uh, somewhere in that because Acts actually ends at 60 A.D. and so and Luke was written before that in all of the Jewish writings to come out of the first century and the writings of others these events are never challenged. There's nobody that that stands up and says hey I'm from Name," or I'm from Capernaum or I'm from Jerusalem and this is absolute nonsense it, it just doesn't happen Rather, when you read in the, the, the Gemara and the Jewish writings, you find that Jesus was able to sell himself because he was a sorcerer, and he worked things that these people believed were miracles, and so did the apostles. In other words, that, that the writings we have acknowledge that he was actually winning the papal by doing what they perceived to be anyway uh, miracles. But there's nobody that rises up and says, this just simply uh, didn't happen at all. In fact, hold your place here and flip over to Acts 2.22. And notice what uh, this way Peter words this in the Sermon on Pentecost. And again, this by Luke, and this circulated in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And so he's saying that you guys are aware. 3,000 people are converted here. You're already aware that, uh, that he did these things. And so that uh, the, the very fact that they could make these statements out in the open and keep in mind, all the time Christianity is spreading and winning thousands of people, the Jews are trying to stamp it out. Well, not only do they never produce the body of Jesus, not only do they never argue with the empty tomb, there's not a single solitary time where the very Jews that are fighting Christianity tackle any one of these miracles and say, hey, that's ridiculous. It it just didn't happen. Rather, we find them actually... Uh, attributing the thing we read in the New Testament, where they said, "You do these uh, works by the power of the devil," when they and yet acknowledge the thing, the thing itself. When we go to their own writings, that's exactly what we find. They attribute the power to the devil himself, and Jesus as a sorcerer, but they don't deny that these ver- these various things were happening. Any. Uh, comment on that, that miracle.
2: And just, I was just thinking back to the point of these Jews, that that was a real problem with the Jews. It's like that um, it, from the very beginning, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, and of course what he's saying is your religious leaders have said this, and he's right back to the heart yeah. issue. So it's as if the Jews did have that problem of we do this right and this right and this right and this right and they miss the whole heart issue. So it seems to be his whole ministry, he's hidden that. And and so I would say the the majority, maybe not, you know, I'm sure not all, but it seems to be a real problem.
0: Yeah, And many of the heart issues, uh, many of their interpretations uh, were obvious that the heart was wrong. For example, when they got him for healing on the Sabbath, and then he would say that, uh, you know, when even your animal falls into a ditch, you help him out. So obviously, if they would help out their own animal, they should have no difficulty with him doing in something there. But, but again, trying to emphasize the wrongness of the heart itself. Okay, the next part here. Oh.
1: Uh, I don't know. Uh, I was wondering if you could answer. Was uh, Jesus the only one who ever raised someone from the dead?
0: In the Old Testament, you've got the example with uh, Elijah in uh, an isolated type thing. The, uh, he would have been the only one in all of the record where this happened on a plurality of occasions and before a large body of people. And even remember when he healed the blind, you know, the very statement there was that uh, you know, this wasn't something that happened on a regular basis. The the only ones that performed miracles to the mind of the Jew and in all their experience, was the prophets, and really they were very few among the prophets. It was the prophecy, and and the fight its fulfillment that served as credentials, but there were very few miracles among the among the prophets all the way through it. Just every now and then, but not not really a whole lot. And and then when Jesus comes, you just whammo! You just have. Uh, we can only guess how many because John himself said that many other miracles did Jesus do I
1: was just trying to wonder if there was any obviously you know he had the, the power but other prophets like you said performed miracles also of course they didn't claim to be God but other than the fact that he claimed to be God I was wondering if there were distinguishing marks you
0: well it. remember uh, it wasn't uh they performed the, the miracle, the stand, miracle would stand behind whatever claim was made. Uh, like the, uh, Moses was told to go to Pharaoh, and God says, I'll make a believer out of him. This is what we'll do. You know? But the, whatever the claim, then the miracle would stand behind it. Well, obviously, they were no more than a prophet. And so that, uh, it, it stood there. But like with Isaiah, Isaiah didn't go around performing miracles. But he gave them information that just continually came to pass, you know. And the same with the other prophets, like it said of Samuel, that none of his words fell to the ground. That they they all. And that's and, and Moses told them that's how they would recognize a prophet. So the primary uh, credential of a prophet was that what he said would come to pass, and that was the primary. And there's really very few miracles, but it was forecast uh, about the miracles and all. And with Jesus. This is the first time in all of uh, history that, that you have this kind of thing happen, where you just have all of these miracles encompassing first him and then his own disciples. So it was something that astounded them. And another thing, keep in mind, when you, when you examine a miracle, you don't believe in God because of miracles. You believe in the possibility of miracles because you believe in God. And it's other evidence like David and Paul pointed that causes you to believe in God. But then obviously your belief in God, then the question becomes, if God is going to communicate, how can he communicate in such a way that you can know it's from him without a miracle? It's impossible. So given belief in God, the, the miracle becomes an absolute essential if you're going to have communication verified as as from God. Uh, Look at that next story, and we'll end on that with John the Baptist. And he's already baptized Jesus, sends a couple of disciples, and asks, are you the one that comes, or do we look for somebody else? And uh, John is in prison. He seems to be a little impatient, doesn't he? And then Jesus uh, says, go back and tell John what you've seen. And you have all these miracles. And they go back to uh, John and tell him. And then, of course, he pays a very high compliment uh, towards John the Baptist. I mean, extremely uh, uh, high compliment towards John. Uh, John here, after baptizing him, after identifying him, begins to have doubt. And, and Jesus isn't doing something. And so he says, go and find out. Asking, are you really the one? That's what he's saying. Are you really the one? Or do we look for somebody else? And he has all these miracles. And sometimes he says, you go tell John what you've seen. Why was John having so much problem? Why the, uh, the question, are you really the one?
5: One thing he's fixing to be put to death.
0: Okay, John is in jail. He's fixing to be put to death. He seems very anxious. He's been preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. So John knew that it was near. And and, and that may be a a factor in itself. And then uh, what kind of a kingdom did everybody expect? Physical. Okay. For him to lead them in an overthrow of Rome. Uh, there's no indication that anybody understood otherwise. Remember that even on the day of Pentecost, right before the Holy Spirit fell, and we have uh, the statement of the disciples after Jesus has been with them for 40 days after his resurrection, they said, are you now ready to restore the kingdom of Israel? And then he went ahead and corrected them. I said, it's not for you to know the times, etc. But they were looking, pardon me, I'm trying to keep them sneezing, they were looking for that kingdom to be restored and for them to get their freedom from Rome. And uh, if John knew otherwise, uh, then he knew something that nobody else they, that none of them, including Peter or anybody else, perceived it at this point. I think
4: 33 through 35 gives a hint to it what might have been the problem uh, Jesus is addressing, of course, those people. He says... When John came neither eating or drinking nor drinking wine you say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and tax collectors and sinners. Um so there was a there was a different approach that Jesus had compared to John. And and the and the and the tax the uh Pharisees in the teacher of the law picked up on this one time. Or uh, I think one of the it was John's disciples, right. maybe, who asked him one time, "Look, uh, you know, we fast and everything. The Pharisees fast. Um, why don't your disciples fast?" But it was, so his uh, his lifestyle, the fact that he associated with these, you know, the quote sinners, um, was was uh, was different than John's, uh, who basically just uh, was went out into the wilderness. And, and
0: had a real simple message, kind of like Jonah, repent or perish, basically, and, you know. Okay, and uh, notice when he, what, what comes across to you in that statement when he said, we played the flute and you did not dance, we sang a dirge, you did not cry. Then he says, John came in one way and, and the Son of Man came in another way, but then wisdom is proved by her children. What is he saying there when he says, John came one way and you reject him, I came in an opposite way and you rejected me and wisdom is justified by our children. What's he saying there? They were
4: rejecting the message and not the way it
0: was brought. Okay. In other words, they were trying to reach the people in every possible way. Uh, Jesus went to their parties, he went to their wedding feast, uh, he mingled with them and associated with them and went into their homes. Uh, John stayed out in a deserted area, did without all the uh, niceties of life, uh, seemingly, and preached this straight message where, uh, you know, of, of, of repentance in the way that you said. But their approach uh, was totally different and they rejected both. And said, in other words, the, the problem, what he s- seems to be saying here, the problem's not John and the problem's not me, and the problem's you. And so he said, uh, and he quotes that a little, we played the flute, and you didn't dance, and we sang a dirge, and you didn't cry. And so you, you the problem is you. You you just were simply not going to respond. But they were, in rejecting John, they were saying that he had a demon and saying wrong things about him, and rejecting Christ, they said he associated with sinners, etc. But the real problem was that they didn't want the message. That, that was it in its entirety. Uh, <clears throat> we might have some of that to go on today when people reject Christianity and they, they give reasons other than you know, maybe what the real reason is sometime. Any, uh, any other comment or observation? Okay, we'll pause on that. The next one is uh, uh, along the line of what we've been talking. You've got a sinful woman uh, who anoints him. Uh, to one of the Pharisees, invited Jesus to have dinner. He goes into the Pharisee's house. A woman who's lived a sinful life in that town—they all knew her—and then she goes in. By the way, when it says she began to wet his feet with her tears, I don't know about you all, but I—I I thought about that a lot when I first read it. How do you know that? How do you cry enough to wash somebody's feet? <laughs> And so anyway, it was just something that was there, but I never fully understood it. I was reading in a, one of the archaeology books, and it's in fact I've read it several times since. What they did back then when they mourned over when they had a death or something, they actually would catch their tears in a veil. And the amount of tears showed how much mourning you know, had, had went on, and it was just a custom in that day. And so uh, a person who had been around a number of years may actually have a veil that was absolutely full. A
3: vase, you
0: mean? A vase. uh A vase that was absolutely full of of tears, you know, that they had caught. And what it did, it showed the mourning. It was an outward sign of the mourning that they had done, and it was a custom. And so they said that what she really had done, by the way, the first one I read this from was Lamsa in uh, his uh, dealing with the customs of that day. Well, so what she really was doing is that not only was she crying, but she could have easily had her vase full of tears that she had caught and she was pouring that on his feet and washing. And see that was a very sacrificial thing for her to do because that was that was something that was just held you know for years. right and, and it was and again it tied in with the customs of, of that day. And then again you have, The spiritual hero is a sinful woman. And again, your person that that isn't there spiritually is the Pharisee. But then the observation, I think, is just as valid today. He said, Simon, who would love you the most if you had two people that owed you a debt and you forgave the one, the big, Simon didn't have any problem with that. The one that you had forgiven the most would, would love the most. I really believe that have you noticed how many times that some of the best workers that we have within Christianity are people that have lived terrible lives? Uh, I think of uh, John Clayton, who, uh, former atheist, but he wasn't just, he tells you in his tapes and his writing that he was a rather immoral person in his life and all. And There's not too many people as zealous as, as John, but. Uh, The more that we recognize that our need for Christ, I think the more love that there will be there. The less you feel the need for him, and the less he's doing for you. And the the truth is that Pharisee had as much sin as a woman. He he may have been a different type, but here he was. He couldn't appreciate fully what was involved in Jesus because, after all, if you're a Pharisee, how do you think you're justified? by your own life and so how do you how do you just really feel indebted to somebody if you feel like you're doing pretty good on your on your own and i think uh in the church today a step towards being the kind of servant we should would be recognition of the fact that we're not good people that we every last one are sinners we all fall short and and we don't have a a snowball's chance in far out of this life except for the sacrifice and we don't, and, and that we honestly deserve to die, that it's not some cruel act of God, we was, deserve to die. That's the
5: point I was uh, trying to make, Paul, go. There's a fellow who, who uh, immigrated to the United States and he now owns a restaurant in MacLimbal from Greece or somewhere. And uh, you can't talk with that fellow very long without him giving you a lecture on we take this country for granted. Yeah. You know, and he just so appreciative of everything about this country and the freedoms and stuff that I don't really think about on a day to day basis means a big deal to him, you see. And so I can I can picture that centurion after the fact, it's not recorded, but I can picture him giving lectures to people that you you do all know what you got hold of here. You know, this, <laughs> this guy is is the Messiah. I mean, look what he's doing. And so sometimes their eyes are more open than than those of us who are who are uh, uh, you know someone who who comes into Christianity and is and is converted on evidence and, and uh, is just totally sick of the former lifestyle. Christianity means a whole lot more than sometimes than someone who's been three times a week church all their life and through and through. Yeah.
0: You know. I really believe that I know in my own life that the best and worst experience I had was my four years in the Marine Corps. of course you spent time in the military too, because you it was there that you see a direct difference between black and white. And and when I looked at that lifestyle, you know, that, that we were in and involved in and everything, and I thought, man, this is really what life is without Christ, you know, and this is sin when you pursue it to its ultimate. But uh that uh, I think I came to appreciate Christianity much more than I ever did before the, you know the, the experience there. Any other comment before we close? Okay, we'll continue on uh, next time.